Enjoy Friday night dinners at the American German Club. Doors open at 5 p.m. Dinner, dessert, and coffee services are served from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. only. There's a live band, full bar with liquor and wine, including German and domestic beers on tap. $10 for admission and dinner is just $12. Visit AmericanGermanClub.org for more info. I wanted to talk about something that's been in the news the last couple of days. And it's not even a new news story. It's been the same news story for the last, I don't know, how long have I been on the air in this market? 28, 29 years. It's been the same story. I've assumed the same position over all these years. And whenever it comes up, I get really frustrated because the first people to attack me for my position are women. And they do it in this really kind of uh, backhanded, insidious way. But I'm going to tell you right now, I do not believe that we should conscript women into combat. Imagine this subject every few years comes up. The subject is the draft. Should we have a mandatory draft? Should people have to serve in the military. I'm one of these people who thinks that some kind of civic service would probably be a good idea. But that is not anywhere in our Constitution. Drafts have been instituted when there is a need to increase the numbers in our volunteer military. One thing about the American people is when there is a need, for the most part, they rise. After 9-11, I know lots of young men who are on their way to colleges, some of them to Ivy League schools, who joined the military because they were furious that our country had been attacked and they wanted to step up and do whatever they could. I also know some women who felt the same way and joined the military after 9-11-2001. And many of them have had wonderful storied careers in the military. Some of them are sitting in Congress right now. But the idea that you're going to have women register for the draft at age 18 through the selective service system, that has nothing to do with Congress's objective of raising and supporting armies, which, by the way, is their objective. There's a lot to debate about this. First of all, was the ruling by this uh, judge who was appointed by George W. Bush legal? Should there even be a selective service? And when is it morally defensible to have a draft? How do women in combat affect troop readiness? And let's stop thinking about this in non-specific terms or like the elitists do with uh, no regard for the truth. It is a fundamental truth that a civilized nation does not force its women to fight its wars. Now, immediately I get the, well, but in Israel, all the girls are signed up. 
And if we were the size of Israel and surrounded by mortal enemies on every side, all over the world for that matter, we might have to have our women fight our wars. But that's not so. The purpose of the U.S. military is to defend the public from external threats so that we can live our lives in the freedom that, uh, that this country has afforded us. If my daughter, if my mother or me as a mother can be sent to the front lines and forced to become either killers or be killed, what the hell are we fighting for? I know that the men who fight, fight so that their women don't have to. The, the, the arguments that I hear about this are all, uh, you know, legalistic and they seem to have their own version of logic. And we are moving towards a, a, a society that, that doesn't allow any difference between men and women. Gender fluidity. I just heard that, uh, the, Duchess Meghan Markle and her husband, Prince Harry, are going to raise their child with a fluid gender. No blue, no pink for this baby. So let me get this right. Are Harry and Meghan attracted to each other just because they are, you know, soul sister and brother? Or, or is there not a physical component that brought them together and then allowed them to make a baby. Why do we have to have the same? Why do we have to be the same? Why can't there be a difference between men and women? I understand that there are some incredible women who are able to do things that men can do. But it's the exception. It's not the rule. And, and it just makes no sense to me at all. Combat, what was it, Charlotte Hayes said, combat is a bloody, nasty business that demands manliness. This virtue that dare not speak its name includes the readiness and aptitude for extreme brutality, including the slaughter of another human being face to face. A society that forces women to do this dirty job is a society that has lost its way, or in the case of Israel, that has no choice. Women in combat, we can see what happens. We just lower the standards. And they tell you, no, 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 they're not lowering the standards. Let me tell you something. They had to. Men and women are very different. And that means that to have uniformly high standards will have politically unacceptable results. But what I see that has infected our leadership and definitely our political class in its entirety has nothing to do with what soldiers and even the average American thinks. If a female soldier and a male soldier were bleeding on the battlefield and you're in there 
conducting triage, do you leave the woman to die? Because that's what America now expects. What kind of moral authority do we have as we battle the, the insanity of radical Islam, the ISIS, and, and some of these other barbarians around the world? You know, we need to embrace our differences, not try to eliminate them. You know, there's a real contradiction between my moral sensibility and the legal or the political realities, especially of the people who live in New York and California. This whole gender theory, I call it the gender theory of relativity, which, by the way, is not scientific. And this idea of equity feminism, to me, is appalling. If in order to be considered a feminist, I have to want to be a man. What's the purpose of being a feminist? That was never my intent. What we need to address when we look at this new question, this new political question, this new legal question, is why are we talking about a draft? And why are we still forcing 18-year-old men to register for for a non-existent draft an all-volunteer military has actually made our military stronger you don't need a draft if you're fighting wars that are relevant and if we were invaded or attacked like we were on 9-11 we wouldn't need a draft then either because Americans take up arms voluntarily. And you just have to look at the enlistment boom after 9-11 to know that's true. Or after World War II, when, or you know, at the start of World War II when um, young men like my father lied about their age to serve. Congress really needs to, uh, to respond to this ruling. And instead of arguing about whether or not we should be forcing women to register, conscripting women, what they really need to do is end the selective service. Then we won't be having this discussion anymore. Because then you can, you can do what you think is morally right. If you want to join the military and you're a woman, then go ahead. There's nothing barring you from doing that. If you ask me, I would rather that you serve in particular roles that you are better suited for because of your physical attributes and because I really don't need to destroy the nurture, the mothers. I like that aspect of being a woman. And believe me, um, if I had to, I could kill, but I certainly can't see that as, a, as something I would want to do or something that I was well-suited to do. How about that? And I've proved that. I've been in a position where I looked at a young man and my mother instincts took over 
Can't afford for that to happen on the battlefield. Can't afford for me to look at the enemy and think to myself, but he's only a child because he's 16 or 17 years old. It's the worst idea ever. And I don't care if it makes people, you know, question my feminism. I believe being a feminist means I want equal opportunity, but I also want to be embraced for my differences. You know, they're all running now for office. We have to have a woman. There better be a woman on the ticket. If there's not a woman on the ticket, must be a woman. A woman, a woman, a woman. You know, if you can come up with a great woman candidate, great. But just because the candidate doesn't have a penis, I'm not voting for them. It's not just whether or not women should serve or be conscripted or whether or not women should be in the military or whether or not even women should be on the front lines. It's why don't we want women and girls to be girls? I want to know why we have to have transgendered boys slash girls competing in sports against girls. Why do girls have to pay the price? Uh, you know, I, I've been watching over the last couple of months all of these people who have decided that if you're running track and you're transitioning, you should be allowed to run track as the gender to which you're transitioning. So in other words, if you're a boy and you're 15, the reason you don't normally race 15-year-old girls is because it's an unfair advantage. So explain to me why somehow I'm supposed to be all enthusiastic about people running against 15-year-old girls who are on their way to becoming girls or maybe they have... Uh, you know, finish their transition. I, I, I don't even know what the proper terminology is. I really don't. But they are not the same. Whatever you want to call each group, they're not the same. And I'm having a real struggle with that. You know, uh, why would boys want to compete against, let's say, a girl who is transitioning to become a boy? Think about that for a second. You know, com competition builds character. It also um, eliminates the weak. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a wrestler. I couldn't wrestle. I'm not a fast runner. I'm barely a runner at all. <laughs> I'm not a good runner at all. But why would a boy want to compete against me? regardless of what I call myself or regardless of what kind of hormone therapy I've had, wouldn't, wouldn't the boy think to themselves, I want to compete against other boys? This whole nonsense that we've done to people and that we've brainwashed them into thinking that they should somehow be gender fluid and that they should share bathrooms and they should this, and it's just so, it's so contrary to, to logic. 
you know, I'll never forget when my husband first saw my five-year-old grandson or four-year, I guess he was four at the time, walk into his bathroom at his preschool in San Francisco. And there were little girls in there and little boys in there. And he said, wait, 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 come out. That's not the boys' room. And there is no boys' room. You know, it's the, everybody goes at the same time in the boys' and girls' bathroom. How is that, how does that serve little boys and little girls? Why, why can't they know they're different? Why shouldn't they expect, you know, if you ask me, half the reason you have this preponderance of people who either, um, you know, don't, don't want to be heterosexual or don't even want to be whatever they were born is because we've made them think that that's really normal. That it's actually kind of weird to not have those thoughts. But I'm here to tell you, I don't have those thoughts. I don't know many people who do. I know some people who are straight up gay. But they don't have any, they don't have any question about it. You know, they're not transitioning into men. Or if they're women, or they're not transitioning into women if they're men. This whole thing we've created... And for what purpose? How's it serving us? Enjoy Friday night dinners at the American German Club. Doors open at 5 p.m. every Friday night of the year. Dinner, dessert, and coffee services are optional, sir, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. only. There's a live band from 7 to 11 playing ballroom, standards, party music, and German traditional. Full bar with liquor and wine, including German and domestic beers on tap. $10 for admission and dinner is just $12. Visit AmericanGermanClub.org for more information. I think that Bernie Sanders has a long way to go, and I, I, there's a certain part of me that believes that ship has already sailed. I mean, it's not the fact that Bernie Sanders marched with Dr. King in the 60s. I think that was one of the first things that he said. The question was, where have you been and what have you done <laughs> since then? What, where, has been, where has your activism been since the 60s? And show me the legislation you've done as a mayor of Burlington or why you've been in the United States House or the United States Senate to positively affect change in the African-American community. And he wasn't able to articulate that answer. A lot of the success Bernie Sanders had uh, was the fact that he was the anti-Hillary Clinton at the time. And he was a home for people who had a problem with Hillary Clinton. Now the field is vast. There are other people in this quote-unquote progressive lane. And I think that Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Beto, Biden, um, and Sherrod Brown and a few others are, are, are really out there running magnificent campaigns. And Bernie Sanders' voice, which has had a huge impact on our policies, is one that's going to be loud and resonate. But Senator Elizabeth Warren does have a clear problem close to home. A University of New Hampshire poll released Thursday showed weak numbers for Warren, the Democratic senator from neighboring Massachusetts. Now, to be fair, only 5% of Democratic voters in the state say they have definitely decided on a candidate. As Lisa noted, the first in the nation primary nearly a year away. But Warren's numbers are down in several of the poll's questions. In August, for example, she polled at 17% when New Hampshire Democrats were asked to pick from a list of likely candidates. In the new poll, she dropped to 7%. Plus 13% said they would never vote for Warren under any circumstances. That's higher than any other Democrat. And only 3% of New Hampshire Democrats named Warren as the most likable Democratic candidate. Now, Warren is trying to set the policy pace in the Democratic field with detailed plans for taxes, child care, and more. But so far, there's little evidence she's getting traction in the state. She likely needs it the most. I'll tell you, I am... Uh 
just fascinated with all of it. it the exciting race two years ago, two and a half years ago, of course, three years ago, really, was the Republican primary with all of those candidates and the emergence of the one non-politician from that field. So I was thinking about this because the Democrat field is, looks like it's going to be even larger than the Republican field was, which poses a lot of challenges and also makes for a lot of laughs. That's all I can say. Now you have Governor John Hickenlooper. He has launched a bid for the uh, nomination by going full Beto. Yeah, he's running in 2020 because I believe that not only can I beat Donald Trump, but that I am the person that can bring people together on the other side and actually get stuff done. And not for nothing, but I asked five people yesterday, five adults, smart, kind of politically uh, astute. I asked them what state John Hickenlooper came from. Um, not only did they not know what state he came from, they did not know that he had been the governor of that state either. They didn't know anything about the 14th person to declare themselves a candidate. So we're up to 14, and it's only March. <laughs> you know, at this time, the uh, uh, Donald Trump had not even entered the race which is fascinating. And what are they going to do, these people, to set themselves apart? Now, I've heard everybody talking. I heard the morning crew talking about it this morning. I saw a lot of people talking about it over the weekend. What's the real purpose of launching a, a bid? For many, it is a stepping stone to a cabinet position or maybe even uh, being on the ticket as a VP candidate. If you are a John Hickenlooper, you don't really think that you have a chance of winning the nomination and then going on to win the general election. I, I've just got to figure that John Hickenlooper has been alive long enough to know that's pretty unlikely. But if he can get his uh, name out there and if he can establish his uh, his bona fides, you know, bona fides as a leader, then... Uh, he stands a chance of getting an appointment somewhere down the line or even, uh, you know, to be uh, on the ticket with whoever finally wins the nomination. Let's not forget that for the most part, often a candidate will select one of his primary opponents, especially if they have a different group of uh, followers or supporters or donors. You know, that, that makes them valuable. But I, I just don't think that John Hickenlooper has much in the way of uh, followers or donors, for that matter. I mean, you know, sometimes I look at how many Twitter followers these people have, and it's, like, shameful. I mean, if you, if you can launch a campaign when you have, like, 100,000 followers on Twitter, then anybody can launch a campaign. You just can't win. And that's, I think, going to be relevant. The other thing is, you know, this whole ra movement about having a woman as the candidate. 
is pretty strange. It, it adds a dynamic to this race that really didn't exist in the Republican primary. Yes, we did have women in the uh, in the primary. We did have Carly Fiorina in the primary, but this is looking like a lot of a lot of women are going to step up. You got what Tulsi? You got Kirsten? You've got Kamala, Kamala, whatever we call her today. You have. Um, all of a sudden, oh, uh, this one, Pocahontas. And it's looking more and more like you're going to be confronted with a Hillary at the last second. You may also get a um, a Michelle Obama at the last second. I, you know, if I were the Obamas, I'd be thinking about that pretty seriously right now as I looked at this field and realized that none of these people had a chance of actually winning and therefore what was left of Barack Obama's legacy, which is a little, very little, um, would be just decimated completely. So, you know, I got to believe that Michelle in the back of her mind is thinking, if this doesn't get better, if I don't see somebody emerge that has a possibility of winning against Trump, then I may very well uh, come down an escalator myself because my popularity is very high. And it's interesting because... Um, She's also got a hit book out, which means that she has a another vehicle with which to put her message out there. Because that's what books do. You know, it takes a village, doesn't it, Hillary? <laughs> um, so it's interesting. I, I This whole woman thing is disturbing to me because I never wanted to be considered because I was a woman. I just didn't want to be locked out because I was a woman. You know, when I uh, came and asked for a job on the radio, you know, from the very beginning, when I was young to the, you know, to the latest 29 years, I didn't show up and say, well, you know, I think you should hire me because I'm a woman. As a matter of fact, I remember using the line that uh, the problem with your station is you have um, no women on who are articulate. And contenders, because they did have women on, but they were doing, um, they weren't doing politics. They had one who was doing a, like a new age, you know, uh, she had once upon a time been a phenomenal talk show host, but then she went Gypsy O'Brien and she was doing like, you know, um, I don't know, like Marion Williams. Oh, that's right. I forgot Marion Williamson is in the race too. That's another woman. But uh, Gypsy O'Brien was doing this like, you know, um, psychedelic psychic stuff and then they had uh, Pat Stevens who's now Pat Thurston and doing politics again but she was doing a show called Dateless and Desperate and so I said you know what's missing on your station is a woman who can do politics and uh, and I thought it was a, a way to get the door open wouldn't have been the only woman on the station, but I would have been the only woman doing that, you know, doing the same thing that the guys were doing. Because I assure you, the guys were not doing dating shows and they were not doing, uh, you know, horoscope and psychic shows either. So I just wanted an equal chance. I didn't want uh, a man to be fired in order for me to get my show. I didn't think that that was fair at all. But hey, you know, today you've got to meet all these quotas and the criteria is profound and the already sizable field of democrat candidates for the party's 2020 nomination just got bigger with hickenlooper 
and I can't even remember, Peter Butgeg, I can never say his name right. How, what chance do you have of actually winning the nomination if nobody can remember your name? That's a rough one. But we'll see. You know, I believe everybody's positioning themselves for a book or for a, a cabinet position or for to be the VP. And the big and the biggest name hasn't even declared yet. Although I'm telling you, I I gotta believe in my heart of hearts that Joe Biden understands that this is not his Democrat Party anymore. This is Joe Biden is an old school Democrat. He tried to get a little hipper uh, during the Obama administration. But my advice to Joe Biden was go down in history as having been a vice president for eight years, a senator for all those years, um, and 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 give it a rest, uh, Joe, because this is going to be a brutal primary, and you have a way of saying the absolute wrong thing. And when you are up against some of these feminazis, and that's what they are, um, you're going to have a tough time containing yourself. And you're going to have to go after them. Because you can't win a primary unless you go after, as Donald Trump proved, you cannot win the primary unless you establish that you are different than everyone else and that you have a winning spirit. That's in the end why Donald Trump got the nomination was because even Republicans, with the exception of like the psychotic Bill Crystals of the world, finally said, we're tired of losing. We're tired of the gentlemanly, uh, you know, candidates, the Bob Doles of the world. They, they, they don't win. They just don't win. We're tired of the John McCain's. They don't win. You know, they, we're tired of uh, running candidates who don't know how to fight, who are afraid to take the gloves off and throw a punch. They just stand there like punching bags and get punched. That's why Donald Trump got the nomination. Now, who in the Democrat Party is going to take a punch and throw a punch? Certainly not uh, Joe Biden. Oh, boy. I'll tell you, this uh, Representative Ilhan Omar, she just, uh, you know, did anybody ever teach her that once you're in the hole, stop digging? And she doesn't seem capable of doing that. Yesterday, she told a Jewish congresswoman, that their constituents didn't elect either of them to have allegiance to a foreign country. This was her conversation with New York Democrat Rita Nita, rather, Lowy, who asked her to retract her comment that she made on Wednesday evening about those who push for allegiance to a foreign country, which, of course, was her way of referring to Israel, which is another one of those anti-Semitic tropes that she's so famous for. I am saddened that Representative Omar continues to mischaracterize support for Israel. I urge her to retract this statement and engage in further dialogue with the Jewish community on why these comments are so hurtful. But Ms. Omar, a Minnesota Democrat and one of the first two Muslim women to be elected to Congress, essentially doubled down in her reply despite Ms. Lowy having specified that accusing Jews of dual loyalty was an anti-Semitic trope. I should not be expected to have allegiance or pledge support to a foreign country in order to serve my country in Congress or serve on a committee, she replied by quote-tweeting the New Yorker's admonition. 
The people of the 5th Congressional District of Minnesota elected me to serve their interest. I'm sure we agree on that. That's fascinating because, you know, that 5th District in Minnesota, do you know it has the highest rate of uh, young men who join ISIS and travel abroad to become terrorists? So I don't know who she's representing, but if she's representing those guys, like uh, I hope she gets unelected in the next election. I have not mischaracterized our relationship with Israel. I have questioned it, said Miss Omar. Miss Lowy called Miss Omar's Sunday statements another example of anti-Semitism, saying later that no member of Congress is asked to swear allegiance to another country. And I believe we can debate important policy without using painful, offensive stereotypes. A frustrated New York Times columnist, Brett Stevens, who I despise, that's my um, editorial, called Miss Omar's language classic anti-Semitism. Someone please write anti-Semitism for dummies. Nobody expects Ilhan to pledge allegiance to Israel, but her attacks on pro-Israel Americans of doing so is a charge of dual loyalty. Miss Lowy was one of two Jewish Democrats, both of them powerful committee chairs, to call out Miss Omar at the weekend for her recent comments on pro-Israel political influence and dual loyalties. During a discussion of Israeli-Palestinian politics, Miss Omar said, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it's okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. You know, you just can't, you can't help her. She just wants to dig this... Uh, this hole. And of course, uh, she and her colleague, Rashida Talib, who accused Mark Meadows of racism because he has black friends, <laughs> you know, the, these are so out of step with much of America, but the problem for us is that they are in perfect step with the constituents that elected them with uh, you know the constituents in Mogadishu, Minnesota, and the constituents in Dearbornistan, Michigan. Yeah. And we better just sort of wake up to that. You know, while the president and others are touting the elimination of ISIS in uh, Syria and ISIS in other parts of the Middle East, they better really start worrying about the emergence of ISIS right here. Because, again, let me remind you that uh, the Minnesota district for which um, Ms. Omar was elected to represent has the highest rate of young males who leave the country to align themselves with uh, terrorists, whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS or uh, you name it, they'll go, they'll go become it. There really is... Uh, it's is a is a terrible terrible awakening that we're going to have to have in this country that stop worrying about who's uh where, where ISIS is not and start worrying about where ISIS is because the is is here and we can dumb it down uh you know but we can't make it go away and dumbing it down doesn't really doesn't really help us at all Anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. I have a lot more to talk about. One more hour in which to get it all done, though. So we'll try to get that. I do want to talk about the state of Florida. I want to talk about our, our state and our 
governor who um, I was a little disenchanted with at first, but every day I grow to remember why I always loved Ron DeSantis. And he's turning out to be possibly um, the best governor that we've ever had. And I, you know, I can say that by looking at some of the statistics that are starting to roll in in just this first quarter, um, which isn't even over yet, of him assuming the mantle of leadership. By the way, when uh, the Foundation for Government Accountability study came out, when work requirements were first implemented in Florida back in January of 2016, nearly 450,000 able-bodied adults without dependents were on the program. By December of last year, two years after work requirements were reinstated, enrollment had declined to just 27,000. That's a 94% drop.